The Old Peabody Pew, Chapter 4 It was Saturday afternoon, the 24th of December, and the weary sisters of the Dorcas band rose from their bruised knees and removed their little stores of carpet tacks from their mouths. This was a feminine custom of long standing, and as no village dressmaker had ever died of pins in the digestive organs, so were no, no symptoms of carpet tacks ever discovered in any Dorcas, living or dead. Men wondered at the habit and reviled it, but stood confounded in the presence of its indubility harmlessness. The red ingrain carpet was indeed very warm, beautiful, and comforting to the eye, and the sisters were suitably grateful to Providence, and devoutly thankful to themselves that they had been enabled to buy, sew, and lay so many yards of it. But as they stood looking at their completed task, it was cruelly true that there was much left to do. The owls had been painted dark brown on each side of the red strips leading from the doors to the pulpit, but the rest of the church floor was a thing of shreds and patches. Each member of the carpet committee had paid, as a matter of pride, however ill she could afford it, $3.67 for sufficient carpet to lay in her own pew. But these brilliant spots of conscientious effort only made the stretches of bare, unpainted floor more evident. And that was not all. Traces of former spasmodic and individual efforts desecrated the present ideals. The doctor's pew had a pink and blue brussels on it. The lawyer's striped stair carpenting. The browns from deer wander sported straw matting and were not abashed, while the greens, the whites, the blacks, and the grays displayed floor coverings as dissimilar as their names. I never noticed it before, exclaimed Maria Sharp, but it ain't Christian, that floor. It's heathenish and ungodly. For mercy's sake, don't swear, Maria, said Mrs. Miller nervously. We've done our best, and let's hope that folks will look up and not down. It isn't as if they were going to set it in the chandelier. They'll have something else to think about when Nancy gets her hemlock branches and white carnations in the pulpit vases. This morning, my Abner picked off two pinks from the plant I've been nursing in my dining room for weeks, trying to make it bloom for Christmas. I slapped his hands good, and it's been haunting me ever since to think I had to correct him the day before Christmas. Come, Lobelia, we must be hurrying. One thing comforts me, exclaimed the widow Buzzle as she took her hammer and tacks preparatory to leaving, and that is that the Methodist meeting house ain't got any carpet at all. Mrs. Buzel, Mrs. Buzel, interrupted the minister's wife with a smile that took the sting from her speech. It will be like punishing little Abner Miller if we think those thoughts on Christmas Eve. We shall surely be haunted afterward. And anyway, interjected Maria Sharp, who always saved the situation, you just wait and see if the Methodists don't say they'd rather have no carpet at all than have one that don't go all over the floor. I know him. And she put on her hood and blanket shawl as she gave one last fond look at the improvements. I'm going home to get my supper and come back afterward to lay the carpet in my pew. My beans and brown bread will be just right by now, and perhaps it will rest me a little. Besides, I must feed Ezekiel. As Nancy Wentworth spoke, she sat in a corner of her own modest rear seat, looking a little pale and tear. Her waving dark hair had loosened and fallen over her cheeks. 
and her eyes gleamed from under it wistfully. Nowadays, Nancy's eyes never had the sparkle of gazing into the future, but always the liquid softness that comes from looking backward. The church will be real cold by then, Nancy objected Mrs. Burbank. Good night, Mrs. Baxter. Oh no, I shall be back by half past six and I shall not work long. Do you know what I believe? I'll do Mrs. Burbank just through the holidays. Christmas and New Year's both coming on Sunday this year. There'll be a great many out to church, not counting the strangers that'll come to the special service tomorrow. Instead of putting down my own pew carpet that'll never be noticed here in the back, I'll lay it in the old Peabody pew, for the red owl strip leads straight up to it. The ministers always go up that side, and it does look forlorn. That's so, and all the more because my pew, that's exactly opposite in the left wing, is new carpeted and cushioned, replied the president. I think it's real generous of you, Nancy, because the Riverboro folks, knowing that you're a member of the carpet committee, will be sure to notice and think it's queer you haven't made an effort to carpet your own pew. Never mind, smiled Nancy wearily. Riverboro folks never go to bed on Saturday nights without wondering what Edgewood is thinking about them. The minister's wife stood at her window watching Nancy as she passed the parchiness. How wasted, how wasted, she sighed, going home to eat her lonely supper and feed Ezekiel. I can bear it for the others, but not for Nancy. Now she has lighted her lamp. Now she has put fresh pine on the fire, for new smoke comes from the chimney. Why should I sit down and serve my dear husband and Nancy feed Ezekiel? There was some truth in Mrs. Baxter's feeling. Mrs. Buzzle, for instance, had three sons. Maria Sharp was absorbed in her lame father and her Sunday school work, and Lobelia Brewster would not have considered matrimony a blessing, even under the most favorable conditions. But Nancy was framed and planned for other things, and Ezekiel was an insufficient channel for her soft, womanly sympathy and her bright activity of mind and body. Ezekiel had lost his tail in a mowing machine. Ezekiel had the asthma, and the immersion of his nose and mouth made him sneeze, so he was wont to slip his paw in and out of the dish and lick it patiently for five minutes together. Nancy often watched him pityingly, giving him kind and gentle words to sustain his fainting spirit, but tonight she paid no heed to him, although he sneezed valiantly to attract her attention. She had put her supper on the lighted table by the kitchen window and was pouring out her cup of tea when a boy rapped at the door. "'Here's a paper and a letter, Miss Wentworth,' he said. "'It's the second this week, and they think over to the store that that Berwick widower must be setting up and take notice.' She had indeed received a letter the day before, an unsigned communication consisting only of the words, Second Epistle of John, verse 12. She had taken her Bible to look out the reference and found it to be, Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The envelope was postmarked New York, and she smiled, thinking that... Mrs. Emerson, a charming lady who had spent the summer in Edgewood and had sung with her in the village choir, was coming back, as she had promised, to have a sleigh ride and see Edgewood in its winter dress. Nancy had almost forgotten the first letter in the excitements of her busy day, and now here was another, from Boston this time. She opened the envelope and found again only a single sentence, printed not written, lest she should guess the hand she wondered. Second Epistle of John, verse 5. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Was it Mrs. Emerson? Could it be anyone else? Was it 
No, it might have been years ago, but not now, not now. And yet, he was always so different from other people. And once in church, he had handed her the hymn book with his finger pointing to a certain verse. She also fancied that her secret fidelity of heart rose from the fact that Justin Peabody was different. From the air of their first acquaintance, she was ever comparing him with his companions and always to his advantage. So long as a woman finds all men very much alike, as Lobelia Brewster did, save that she allows some to be worse, she is in no danger. But the moment in which she perceives and discriminates subtle differences, marveling at that there can be two opinions about a man's superiority, that moment the miracle has happened. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. No, it could not be from Justin. She drank her tea, played with her beans abstractedly, and nibbled her slice of steaming brown bread. Not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee. No, not a new one. Twelve, fifteen years old, that commandment, that we love one another. Who was speaking? Who had written these words? The first letter sounded just like Mrs. Emerson, that said she was a very poor correspondent, but that she ju should just drop now on Nancy one of these days. But this second letter never came from Mrs. Emerson. Well, there would be an explanation sometime, a pleasant one, one to smile over, and tell Ezekiel and repeat to the neighbors, but not an unexpected, sacred, beautiful explanation, such a one as the heart of a woman could imagine if she were young enough and happy enough to hope. She washed her cup and plate, replaced the uneaten beans in the brown pot, put them away with the round loaf, folded the cloth, Obelia Brewster said Nancy always set out her meals as if she was entertaining company from Portland, closed the stove dampers, carried the lighted lamp to a safe corner shelf, and lifted Ezekiel to his cushion on the high-backed rock gear, doing all with the nice precision of long habit. Then she wrapped herself warmly and, locking the lonely little house behind her, set out to finish her work in the church. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic.